Hey there, this is James Tripp, and this is Agents of Everything. This is episode four of Agents of Everything, but I'm probably gonna stop announcing the episode number because it just makes it easier for me to create in flow. And speaking of creating in flow, I have moved my chair today to sit in the window because it's a glorious day and I wanna see outside, I wanna see the sunshine. I live in the west end of Edinburgh. This means that being close to the window, I'm actually close to the tram tracks here. So the tram is gonna come by from time to time. If you hear that, you'll know what it is. You might hear it ringing its bell. You might hear the rumble of the tracks. We're gonna be looking in this episode at the question of, are we free to choose or are we unconsciously programmed? Now, this is a hugely significant question. Maybe you've thought about this yourself a lot. Maybe you haven't given it too much thought, but we're often acting at various times in our lives as if we're free to choose, but we're also often acting very much as if we cannot choose, as if there are forces at play upon us, maybe forces from the world around us, circumstances, this kind of thing, maybe forces from other people, but oftentimes forces from within our own inner mind, our own unconscious mind that seem to drive our behaviors. I think most people could relate to both sides of this experience. The sense that there's an I that chooses, I can choose, and a sense that so much of what I seem to do, how I seem to react, how I seem to respond, is something that bubbles up from somewhere else deeper within my mind, somewhere before choice or beyond choice. Well, this podcast is agents of everything. It's about agency. And what does it mean to be an agent? Well, it means being at cause, at cause with things. And if we don't know where we can be at cause, if even we can be at cause, how can we even talk about being an agent of anything, let alone an agent of everything? So we really want to address this question of agency. Are we free to choose? Are we free to act or are we unconsciously programmed? Now, there's a lot of terrain that I might want to cover here. So I might end up doing this in more than one episode. But I'm going to start this off talking about my experience of self-transformation, okay? My experience of upping my own ability to make the differences I wanted to be able to make in my life, be much more in the driving seat of my life. Because the reason that I do the work that I do, that I create the things that I create, all comes from my own history. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't think much about who was running my life. It didn't seem like I was, though. It seemed like there were a lot of forces in the world that were telling me what to do. My parents were telling me what to do. Teachers at school were telling me what to do. And much of what they were telling me to do, I didn't want to do. I knew this as a kid. Right? I had this rebellious streak inside of me. Maybe this is why I value personal sovereignty and personal freedom so much. But I was kind of miserable as a kid as well. And not just because of this. I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of anxiety. The world seemed like a scary place. But I also felt kind of oppressed by people telling me what to do, telling me to do all these things that I just didn't like, I didn't enjoy, I hated. Right? And I had this idea that I would grow up and be free at some point. You know, that I would reach this mythical state called adulthood and I would be free. Well, guess what? I reached that mythical state. And by the time I reached that mythical state, I felt even more oppressed because now I had to go work. I had bills to pay. I had these responsibilities, allegedly. And I didn't like it, by the way. I didn't like 
what the world seemed to be telling me I had to do and how the world seemed to be telling me that I had to live my life. I used to say, I didn't sign up for this shit, right? That was my mantra in my late teens. And I was miserable as well. And I still had anxiety issues and all sorts of stuff was going on. Right? I did not feel that I had any power in the world. And I did not personally like who I thought I was. Now, this was a problem for me because I didn't feel like I had any choice in who I thought I was. I thought that I was what I was. And I thought that that was largely genetically predetermined. So I was stuck with it. I felt like I had no power, no agency whatsoever. Now, I've told this story elsewhere. Maybe I've even told this story or a version of it in this podcast series at some point. But, you know, I used to do reckless things when I was a kid. I used to take lots of substances, drink a lot. A lot of this was about my attempt to make my internal suffering go away. I didn't realize I was the creator of that suffering. I didn't realize that was what I was doing within my own mind that was creating that. So I tried to make it go away with uh, external additions, medications, alcohol, these kinds of things. What I just drove me into a, a further downward spiral. And um, when I was about 19, I had a uh, sort of an episode occur and I got signed off work and it felt like I got what I wanted because I'd wanted the world off my back. I felt oppressed by these forces in the world. I wanted the world off my back and I got this. I got this for two whole weeks, right? Signed off work. And it occurred to me I was out driving. I'd been given some formal medications this time, SSRIs. I didn't take them for very long, thankfully. And I had this epiphany and it came to me in this form, the world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. Okay? The world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. I call this the power switch. This was a power switch in my life. It's where I took responsibility. I took some degree of ownership. It's like the world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. So I have to adapt. I have to adjust. Right? Now, what I was clear about at that time was I didn't want to sell out. I didn't want to compromise. I didn't want to kowtow, right? I wanted to find a way of working with the world, find some power in myself, some agency in myself so that I could work with the world. The way I would say it now is create with the world, you know, as it is, acknowledging it and accepting it as it is, right? Because I believe this is what you must do to create with any medium. You must accept the nature of that medium to create with clay. You must accept the nature of clay. You cannot be in argument with the nature of clay, right? Same with anything in life, whatever it is that you want to create with. And I would argue that the world around us is there to be created with. If we want to be in our power, in our agency, we cannot control the world around us. We do not have that option. We merely get to meet it and create with it. But to do this, we must be in our power to meet it and create with it. We must be in our choice. But is this really possible? Is this really possible? Right, let's look at this. Let's iron this one out. So one of the big things for me when I had this power switch, what I call a power switch, right? switch to personal power, the world is not gonna reorganize itself to suit my needs. I started looking for solutions. I started looking for my power in the world. Where could I find my power? Initially, the first thing I did which is crazy when I look back, is I started to learn about quantum physics. And the rationale behind this was that if I understood 
quantum physics. I understood the very foundation of the universe. Surely I'd have more power with the universe around me, right? I was clutching at straws. That's the truth of it. I didn't know where to look. That seemed like a good place. Now, in a way, that helped me feel better because I was taking action. I was at least doing something. I was making some sort of steps towards changing things. And I believe there is magic in action, okay? There is magic in movement. So this was a useful thing. I started to feel better, a little bit more in the driving seat of my life because of this. But the answers weren't really there. So I found myself in my early 20s getting into philosophy. I decided I would go to university. I would take a degree. I'd missed out on that when I was younger, so I had to do an access course because I didn't have the right qualifications to get in. But I think I was 21 when I went to the University of London, Heathrop College, to study philosophy. And I was looking for something in that. I was looking for deeper understandings about the world and how it works so that I could have more power in the world, more agency in the world. Now, unfortunately for me, I ended up being pulled into analytic philosophy, right? I didn't even know there was a distinction between analytic and continental philosophy, okay? Some people say that, you know, the Anglo-American tradition versus the continental tradition. The Anglo-American tradition is about analysis and the continental tradition is about synthesis, right? So whereas the continental tradition in the 20th century was looking at broad meanings like understanding life, understanding what it is to be human, the Anglo-American analytic school was much more interested in a very, very narrow field focusing on language and epistemology and um, very, very narrow set of questions. I didn't know there was a difference. I ended up getting pulled in the direction that probably served me the least, although it wasn't without benefit. But of course, the questions came up back then around free will versus determinism. Right? If cause and effect is a fundamental law in the universe, how can there be free will? Everything must be determined by prior causes. Okay, but free will, it kind of seems like a thing that we have, to a certain degree at least. We at least have will if it isn't entirely free. So philosophy for me, okay, maybe gave me some useful tools, maybe helped me move forward. But it wasn't until I encountered neurolinguistic programming, NLP, what I prefer to think of as simply neurolinguistics. I may do another episode on this, looking at neurolinguistics versus NLP, particularly if people are interested. But it was when I encountered this that I encountered a way of seeing the world and a set of tools and understandings that absolutely transformed everything for me. Now, I want to just say this about NLP. And again, I say I might do another episode on this. Um, I'm not a big fan of the P in NLP, programming. We are organic. We are alive. We are not machines to be programmed. Okay, so I think there's a problem with that metaphor. But um, I meet people from time to time that tell me that NLP has been debunked, that it's pseudoscientific, that there's no evidence base, whatever it might be. They tell me this. And I tell them in return that I transformed myself and my life with NLP in such deep, profound ways that it is insane when somebody's telling me that it's fake, basically, right? Now, I just want to say this. Of course, I became an NLP trainer at one point in my life. I'm not an NLP trainer anymore. I've kind of moved on to other related things. But before I became an NLP trainer, before I became an NLP practitioner, I'd been working with NLP for five years 
day in, day out, week in, week out, transforming myself, transforming my being in the world, my engagement with the world, the kind of results I was able to create, my ongoing experience of myself in the world, huge shifts, phenomenal stuff. As I say that, I'm not saying that to say that NLP is special or unique or the only thing that can do that. That was my entry point into mind tech, life tech, this kind of thing, really significant stuff. And I've continued to build on that. So I guess that's the core for me. This is why I often say I'm a neurolinguist at heart, even if I've been exposed to many other things. So I learned something from NLP. And what I learned basically, one of the most foundational lessons I learned was that we are a collection of patterns. This is a way that NLP might view things and neurolinguistics might view things. We are a collection of patterns and those patterns are not innate. Those patterns are learnt. And we are learning entities, i.e. we can put new patterns in place or change the patterns that we've got. So whoever we might think we are, if we think that that's innate, it's not really. It's just a collection of learned patterns. This is the NLP view. And then if we look at other people who have different patterns encoded into them, we can find ways of modeling those patterns out and sort of bringing them into ourselves. In NLP, they might say installing them in ourselves, but I'm not a fan of that kind of language. So um, I started to repattern myself once I realized it was possible because there was a huge mind shift here. Okay, I was not a product of my genetics. I was not a victim to who I thought I was. I could be in my power to change myself. But here's the interesting thing. The paradigm that I bought into with NLP, and it is a paradigm, still was very much reliant on this idea that we are patterned and that our power lay in changing our patterns and changing our programming, so to speak, to use that neurolinguistic programming metaphor. And there's a big influence there from hypnosis and hypnotism and these sorts of things. So I was putting a lot of work into repatterning myself, okay, changing my unconscious patterning, right? Now, this starts to bring us to what we're talking about in this episode, okay? Are we free to choose or are we unconsciously programmed? This is the question. NLP very much leans into the idea that we're unconsciously programmed, but that we somewhere can influence that programming, okay? But our action is about reprogramming ourselves, not necessarily about having a higher level of ownership and power in the moment. It was only when I started working around 2013 with a coach called Steve Chandler. Now, some people may have read Steve Chandler's books, and Steve has a whole rich array of influences on his work. But Steve was a huge game changer for me. I'd done so much in my life with NLP. I'd transformed myself so much with NLP. But very early on, in one of the sessions, I remember Steve saying something like this to me. He said, stop. Stop identifying with your past. Stop identifying with your stories. Stop identifying with who you think you are. And start identifying with the I that chooses. Now, this totally blew me away. Start identifying with the I that chooses. I had not been identifying with the I that chooses. 
right? I'd been identifying with myself as a collection of patterns. And let me emphasize this point. That got me a lot of difference, right? It was a very powerful way of working with myself. But it wasn't the only way. So Steve said, start identifying with the eye that chooses. I hadn't really thought too much about the eye that chooses. Of course, there was some sort of eye that had been choosing to re-pattern myself. But this concept of the eye that chooses, it started to put me really into my power, into a power of being able to own things in the moment. Now, I want to make this clear. This did not replace my previous understanding, like of how we might be structured, how we might be created by unconscious patterning. But it helped me to develop a new self that was able to more clearly connect with choice and find choice and power. I often call this the transcendent self, right? I'll share this here. I have a model I call the trance and transcendence model, right? Because I'm English, I say trance. So uh, Americans, trance and transcendence. Now, what I mean by this is that I talked in a previous episode about how we come into the world with no power in the world, right? Because we've got no sense made of the world. And we go about making sense of the world. And that sense gives us the set of understandings we have through which we meet the world, through which we engage with the world, through which we create with the world, right? That sense, that whole collection of sense, you could call that our quote unquote unconscious programming. Although remember that is a metaphor and metaphors shape our engagement with things and it might not be the best metaphor, okay? But we're just gonna work with it for now. Now, what I didn't talk about when I talked about sense and sense-making, if you just think about it like that, people can end up with this idea that we've just got this general map of the world, but we actually don't. It's almost like we've got a sort of general map of the world, but we've got a whole bunch of context-specific maps of the world that relate in some way to our general map of the world. And it's actually all a bit more complex than that. So there's a different way you can look at it. Now, because I've spent a lot of time uh, in the world of hypnosis, and some people will know that I am known for an approach to hypnosis called hypnosis without trance. And in that, I am rejecting the idea that there is a special state called trance that you put somebody in when you're doing hypnosis that renders them somehow open to suggestion in a way that they may not otherwise be. And so I reject that idea of trance as a model for how hypnosis works. But the idea of trance is quite a useful idea, I think, in a different way, and an idea that can relate to hypnosis and how we live our lives and personal change and personal agency and all of these things. Why? Well, think about it like this. What if a trance is just any state of mind where we drop into an experience of things being a certain way, and out of that bubbles automated responses, right? I.e., we're not really choosing. We're just in some kind of flow, just reacting. What comes up is what comes up. We are in an experience at the moment, and what comes out of that is what comes out of that, right? Now, if we start looking at trance like this, what we can start to recognize is that we are the vast majority of the time in our lives in one kind of trance or another, in one kind of automated set of responses or another. So we live our lives through trances. And this is a concept I call trance repertoires, right? I refer to with the term trance repertoires. We have a repertoire of trances. This means that 
when I, for example, show up on stage or even doing a podcast like this, right? If I'm recording a podcast like this, I go into a particular trance. I go into a particular flow state. I do this the way that I do this. When I'm out walking the dog, when I meet other dog walkers, I will drop into a particular type of trance, right? I actually have one of two trances I will do, and it will depend on the mood that I'm in, but it's only one of two trances, okay? I used to, back in the day, run a social anxiety trance, let's call it, a lot of the time. If I found myself in certain social contexts, a particular trance would fire up that would have me react and respond in particular ways. It wasn't helpful for me. We have trances for everything we do. In a sense, all trances are high performance states. If I'm boxing, I like to box a bit. If I'm boxing at my best, when I'm boxing, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not consciously choosing it. I'm in flow. I'm in a high performance state. That particular trance has encoded in it, or the underpinnings of it, are everything I understand about boxing, everything I understand about myself in that context, everything I understand about what is going on, what is unfolding in the moment. And from that, I respond. It's a flow state. It's a high performance state, right? If I am speaking right now, I'm in a flow state. I'm in a high performance state, okay? I do not know the next words that are coming out of my mouth. I am in a high performance state. I do not run these, do these things from scripts, okay? Now, likewise, if I were in this moment getting caught up on my own thoughts and choking, that would be a high performance state of stopping myself, of choking myself, right? Anxiety is a high performance state. Anger is a high performance state. When somebody goes into a rage, they are in a flow state. They are in that rage state. They're not there deciding what to do next. They're just reacting. These are all different kinds of trances. We live our lives Trance by trance by trance. I put my shoes on. I do up my shoelaces in a shoelace tying trance. I don't have to remember or think consciously about how to tie shoelaces. So the trances we live by, right? Our trance repertoires. This is something else you could say we build from a young age. Right? Context-specific trances. Now, those trances are going to get us what they get us, and they're going to keep us from what they keep us from. Okay, but where is the eye that chooses in amongst all of that? Where is the eye that chooses? So um, there's another way of thinking about this, right? Which kind of gets deeper than all that. The idea of choice, being in your power to choose. This is an idea that's very much at the center of 20th century existential philosophy. Jean-Paul Sartre, right? Now Sartre, or Sartre, I don't know how to say his name because I don't speak French. His philosophy is obviously quite rich. It's not going to be as simple as I put it now, but right at the heart of the Sartre philosophy is the idea that we can choose, that we always have choice. Everything is about choice. Everything. And that our existential burden, right, the burden of our lives is that we are always having to choose. Sometimes in difficult circumstances, we always choose. Right? This, is, this is Sartre's idea. However, is it really true? Is Sartre right? By the way, he was writing, you know, he experienced the Second World War. He was part of the French resistance. This is the context he was doing his thinking in. A lot of people were saying, well, we have no choice. We have to go along with the German occupiers. Sartre was saying, no, we do not. We get to choose. If we go along with the German occupiers, that's a choice, right? Or we can choose to forge our own path. We do not get to shrug off the burden of choice and responsibility. 
right? And it's a heavy burden. This is Sartre's point. Now, I really like this. I make a lot of utility of this. This is partly how I use the eye that chooses. When I'm coaching people sometimes, you know, they'll often live in a realm of no choice. Well, I don't have any choice. I have to do this because da-da-da-da-da. I'll say, well, no, really, you choose to do this because you don't want those consequences of not doing it. I will play the choice frame a lot because my job is to invite people into their power, into their choice, right? Because it's something that often gets neglected. But here's the thing. Sartre, he never addressed something that was growing during his time and continued to grow. And these are, you know, the epistemological issues, let's say, or the deeper issues that what people generally refer to as postmodernism reveals to us. All right. Now, if you want to understand the idea of postmodernism, it's quite simple. It just means postmodernism, after modernism. Now, modernism, the modern world, this is founded upon the idea that there is a truth to the world and that we simply have to find that truth out. Okay. So if you're a modernist, if you're an enlightenment thinker, you're going to be interested in finding out the best ways to truth, right? There are facts about the world. There are facts about ourselves. We want to find out the best way of getting to those facts. What the postmodernist era starts to recognize, or it's the result, the culmination of the realization, we can't get to those facts, right? It isn't about objectivity entirely. Subjectivity is massive. And subjectivity isn't just like we have a subjective take on immutable objective facts. Our subjectivity starts to create objective facts that we don't get to know objectively, but we only get to know subjectively, which then creates, and then we end up with these weird, strange loops, and reality starts to dissolve. Okay, so there's like a, one of the big threads of postmodernism is the ability to be able to deconstruct things, take things apart. In my personal alchemy work, so some people might be interested in my program, Self-Hypnosis and Personal Alchemy. I use this frame, Personal Alchemy, to look at self-transformation. And the old, um, the old equation, let's say, it's probably not quite the right metaphor, for alchemy is solve a coagula, dissolving and creating. You could call it deconstructing and reifying, okay? So we dissolve away what was and we create anew. So a lot of postmodernism and postmodernist philosophers, they're very much about this solve side of things. They wouldn't look at it like this. They're dissolving everything, right? And they're not at all about reifying and making things real. They're questioning everything that has come before that has been made real and assumed to be real, right? This is a valuable part of personal alchemy. It's a valuable part of relating to the world. But you must also have operational truths, truths through which you do engage with the world, right? So I wouldn't argue for one or the other in a strong position. I'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole right here. We might come back to that in the future. But here's one way of thinking about this. You know, are we free to choose or are we a subject of our programming? And how does that relate not only in our own lives, but to the, the world? Let's look at history. If you go back to the sort of modern era, history was very much looked at as a series of objective events. And people would look back and they go, well, this thing happened and that thing happened and this war and that war and this leader made this decision and this leader made that decision. And it's often looked at through the actions of the powerful. 
Okay, people go, well, you know, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world and Genghis Khan, another great conqueror, Napoleon, these great conquerors that changed the face of everything. And then there's that French Revolution and these sorts of things, these big events instigated by people. And then we look at the people and we look at them as instigators, them as the causes. But here's the thing, pick any great instigator were they really an instigator? Were they the one that shaped history or had history up until that point and the culture that they lived in shaped them? Were their actions truly free or were their actions just the obvious actions, right? There's an NLP presupposition that says people make the best choices available to them given their understanding of the world. Well, where did Napoleon's understanding of the world come from? Where did Genghis Khan's understanding of the world come from? Right? Where did Alexander the Great's understanding of the world or anyone's understanding of the world? Stalin, Hitler, Churchill, Roosevelt. Where did their understandings of the world come from? What reality tunnels were they operating from? Who constructed those? Now, if it's really true that we make the best choices we make according to our understanding of the world, did we choose our understanding of the world? So going back to the previous episode, we were talking about sense-making. We put that together, we co-create that, sure, with the world, but often with very low levels of consciousness. So did these great people create history or did history and the culture of their time create them? Or do we create the world around us? Or has the world around us created us? Now, here's the thing. There is no binary choice to be made here. This is just the left hemisphere wants to know which way does the causal line go. The fact of the matter is, is when we're dealing with complexity and complex systems, which biology is a like biological life, we're dealing with complexity, sociological life, biopsychosocial systems, this is complexity. It's full of strange loops. It's full of recursive feedback loops, right? Phenomena emerge that then the emergent phenomena bring themselves back to bear upon that from which they emerge, right? You get these weird, strange loops that the left hemisphere cannot plot. As Heisenberg put it, the world is not any more complex than you think. It's more complex than you can think. And this is why the Taoists, right? The Taoist idea of yin and yang, some will say that's not really Taoist, it's pre-Taoist and beyond Taoist, but I'm going to call it Taoist. The Taoist idea of yin and yang, it is both this and this. These are complementary but apparently opposing elements, but not contradicting elements. Okay, so yes, we are created by the world. And yes, we are creative forces in the world. There is no contradiction. There might be some kind of head job, some kind of frying. Well, who am I really? Right? Is there a true me that exists beyond the influences of the world around me? Personally, if you ask me, I say no, there isn't. But that doesn't mean there isn't a true me at this moment in time whatever that is, right? But the true me, whatever that is, within this true me, within this true you, is there not a sense of agency? Is there not a sense of I am and I can? Is it not true that even though you may find yourself most of the time operating upon the world from your adapted trances, is it not true that you can also stop sometimes become aware in a different way choose differently reflect weigh up options is this not true also
I would argue that it is. And if it seems mysterious as to how, but how can this be so? If we are created, how can we be free? Is it an illusion? I don't know. Maybe it's just magic. Who knows? There's been research done to refute the idea of free will, okay, that apparently refutes the idea of free will. Now, I will say this. If we're talking about choice, if we're talking about agency, if we're talking about an eye that chooses, I believe this has something to do with will, the concept of will. I do not believe in free will, right? But I do believe in will. So it isn't, I would say, the case to say that we are always free to choose absolutely in any way without influence from anything else. No, we're not. We're always influenced. We cannot not be influenced and we cannot not influence the world around us, right? Recursive, strange feedback loops. So we're always being influenced and we're always influencing. To me, from the agents of everything, increasing agency perspective, it's like, well, how do we increase our power to influence the unfolding of life around us? Right? Whatever it is that we quote unquote are, that's what we're interested in doing. Okay, so someone's knocking on my door, which is kind of breaking my train of thought somewhat. Um, but yeah, I just want to say this last point here. There's some famous experiments done where people having their brains monitored in fMRI machines, they've got these clickers, these left clickers and these right clickers. And they're being asked to just randomly choose left and right, but they are being asked to click as soon as they choose. So they stay in a place of not choosing, not choosing, not choosing, then they choose left, click, and they click immediately. So it should be a very, very small delay. And the neurological activity is watched on an fMRI machine. Now, there's been various iterations of this experiment done. I think in the early ones, it was found that there was like a, like a second or so before the person knew they were choosing, the researchers could see a signal in the neurological activity that tipped them off what they were going to do. So the people observing through the fMRI monitoring knew the choice the person was going to make before they did. Now, I have heard, and I'm not a scholar or anything like that, but I have heard that more recent versions of this have got that up to about six seconds. So the person monitoring the experiment knows six seconds before the person allegedly making the conscious choice, right? They know what they're going to choose. So if that's true, a lot of people say, well, that debunks free will. Yes, but does it debunk choice? Now, interestingly, one of the conclusions that's been drawn from this is that it isn't so that we have free will, but some have sort of comically put it that we have something called free want, i.e. that our consciousness actually serves mostly to interfere with something that may otherwise happen automatically and can therefore change the course. Now, you could go, well, if it's changing the course, isn't that instigating it? We're not going to go there, all right? because we'll go round and around and around forever in a day. Things are not only more complex than we think, they're more complex than we can think. But this shines a light on something which I think is significant and important and has a practical implication, if not application. And it is this. What is consciousness for? What is awareness for? Because the truth of the matter is, the vast majority of things we do 
we can do completely unconsciously. We don't need consciousness for. Very often, I will do things like put coffee on. And I'm like, I, I know I intend to put coffee on, but I'm putting the coffee on. I'm thinking about something else. I'm not really paying attention. Then afterwards, I think to myself, oh, did I just put caffeinated coffee or decaf coffee in the coffee pot? The fact is, I don't know, because I wasn't really conscious. I was only vaguely aware of what I was doing. It was all running on autopilot. Many have had the experience of going out driving. They intend to go one place, but their mind drifts, so they just follow their usual journey path. They go, oh, I went to the wrong place. How conscious were they really? Yes, they were aware of the things they needed to be aware of within their driving trance to operate uh, in a high-performance state, right? But being aware and being conscious are different things, okay? So that consciousness is this, I am here, I am choosing, here is what's going on. Not just letting things run on autopilot while we drift around. Okay, so most of what we do, we don't need consciousness for. I've pointed this out many, many times. I do not believe that consciousness is a doing state. I believe that consciousness is a changing state. It is a learning state. It is about interrupting things and setting up a new learning or reflecting feedback loop. The purpose of consciousness is for changing, learning, changing course. And this is where the idea of free won't, this is where the, the power of the eye that chooses is. It's not to choose to instigate, it's to choose to become aware, to stop, to interrupt the automatic to direct attention intentionally in different ways, to change the flow of our own cognition, to be aware of the ideas that we're operating by that we haven't even questioned and choose if we wish to do so to access different ideas. We can, with our eye that chooses, interrupt the trances that may be carrying us off in directions that we do not feel are serving us. This is a powerful thing. Right? And if we know how to use our minds effectively, we can connect into new trances or new directions or new intentionalities. We can move our own minds without consciousness when we learn to do so. And this comes back to this idea, once again, I've called the trance and transcendence model. So what's the transcendence? I talked about the trance, the trance repertoires. What's the transcendence? Well, the transcendence bit is taking that what you could call that core self, the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio calls it the core self, the sense of I am and I can, the sense of agency. Taking that and starting to build its own knowledge set, to build that into a powerful trance that chooses. So when I'm building my own mentality, when I'm building my own agency, increasing my personal power in the world, the first place I go is now, not to the trances that I used to think ran my life. Yes, I do want to be able to work with those trances, but who is the I that is going to work with those trances? The transcendent self, right? The I that knows how to direct consciousness, the I that has conscious tools to intervene, interrupt, to make the differences that I want to make. The I that can choose to remember different organizations of reality, connecting to different organizations of reality, different sense. We talked about sense-making before, right? The eye that can stop and do differently. That self, the transcendent self, it's not an unchanging self. 
It's a self that can grow, a self that can be developed, a self that can be empowered. Indeed, when I am working with people one-on-one, mentoring, coaching, this kind of thing, for some sorts of clients, some categories of clients, what I'm actually helping them do is not change the trances they live by. If I'm doing change work, I might do that directly. But when I'm doing more kind of coaching and mentoring work, I'm helping people develop that transcendent self, the I that chooses, okay? You can do this too. And um, what I wanna be doing through the Agents of Everything podcast, what my intention is, is this podcast, the stuff I share here is always for somebody's transcendent self, their higher self, whatever it is, the them that they are developing that's gonna take them beyond the life that they have and into a new engagement with the world, richer experiences of the world, more into who they would choose to be as a creative force in the world. Okay, so thank you all for uh, being here. If you have any questions off the back of this, there's always a comment section at the bottom. I really welcome this. At the moment, Agents of Everything is new. I'm not stirring up the level of conversation that I want to in public. People have been writing to me privately saying, I love this and I have this question. I would love for people to have these conversations publicly. Ask me the questions you want to ask. If you've got requests for topics, places you'd like me to put my energy, I'm very, very welcoming of suggestions. So please do contact me on that. All right, let's wrap this episode. And uh, I look forward to when we next connect.